Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. And as most of you are aware, uh, the fun part of the service is now officially over. I'm here and I'm going to be teaching the next 40 or 45 minutes or so. Actually, you know that that doesn't mean that we're not going to have a little fun, right? Um, so hopefully it will be, this will be a very meaningful time and very meaningful teaching for everybody as we continue our parabolic series teaching through the parables of Jesus. So um, I want to begin today by reading a few uh, words about a paragraph from a book that really impacted me a number of years ago. Many of you would be familiar with it. M. Scott Peck's classic, um, Millions and Millions and Millions Sold, called The Road Less Traveled. A guy who, when he wrote this, was kind of on his way to faith, ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. Um, nonetheless, here's how the book opens. It opens with these very famous words, Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, it is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief noisily or subtly that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be and that has somehow been especially visited upon them or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species, and not upon others. I know about this moaning because I have done my share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Well, I wish that what I just read to you was not true. But all of us, as we hear it read, know that, at least to some extent, it is absolutely true. I would prefer, and I typically as a pretty positive, faith-filled person, focus on the fact that life is wonderful. I'd rather show you a clip from uh, a great Christmas movie that, that makes this point. George Bailey, who discovers himself and is reminded... So is life difficult or is life wonderful? We all know the answer is yes. We know that life is difficult. We know that life is wonderful. Even in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, the main character, does not come to this wondrous moment until he faces some of life's difficulties and resolves them. 
Perhaps, perhaps the best treatment of this in literature, at least according to my memory, is uh, from the words of a book that I had laying close to me this week as I was writing this sermon. The words of Charles Dickens, you would be familiar with them. Um, who begins his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, with the great words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. So is it the best of times, or is it, if you read the paper this morning, the worst of times? Again, the answer is yes. The fact is that difficulty and wonder, the best and the worst, coexist in present reality. And Jesus acknowledged this and resolved this present coexistence of good and evil, best and worst, wonder and difficulty, in a parable that he told called the parable of the wheat and weeds. The parable of the wheat and weeds. Here is the parable, Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. This is the headline. This is the most important part of the parable. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew uses that phrase kingdom of heaven in the same way Mark, Luke, and John use the word kingdom of God. It has to do with the, the, the kingdom of God coming to earth from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But... While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now in a few minutes, we'll talk about how Jesus interpreted this parable to explain how good and evil are allowed to coexist until the judgment at the end of time when evil will be destroyed and only good will remain. But let's first talk, as Jesus does in the, uh, in, in the way he works through what we know as Matthew chapter 13, let's first talk about the power of the good seed, which is what Jesus is emphasizing. He starts his parable by saying, as he does in a, a number of his parables, the kingdom of God is like... In this case, the kingdom of God is like somebody who planted good seed, the enemy planted bad seed, and he allowed both to grow together until a time of judgment. 
Matthew chapter 13, which is what I just read from and where I've been teaching from at length over the last three or four weeks now, begins by Jesus telling the parable of the good soil. We've spent a lot of time on this, where Jesus talked about those who preach the message of the kingdom of God are like a farmer who scattered seed and some fell on receptive soil or good soil and some fell on unreceptive hearts. But the seed of the kingdom of God or the seed of the secrets of the kingdom, when planted in good soil or receptive hearts, which have to do with people who really see, who really hear, who really understand, who really turn, when the seed of the kingdom is planted in receptive hearts, it produces a a life of productivity that can only be described in supernatural terms. He closed that parable by saying the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He immediately then goes into this parable that I've just read to you, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But before he interprets this parable, which he does, he tells two more brief parables that emphasize the power of the good seed. The headline, ever and always with Jesus, is on the good news. And here, though he's going to acknowledge the existence of things that aren't good in this world, he's going to focus and hammer away at the idea that something good has been planted in this world and that good has been planted in his person in this reality called the kingdom of God. So what is the good seed? Again, I'll remind you, the good seed is the message of the kingdom. His announcement that he brought the kingdom of heaven to earth and that we can see it and enter it now when we believe the message or good news or gospel and are born again by the seed of the word of God. The fact that Jesus has brought his kingdom to this planet is not only the theme of Matthew 13, it's the theme of the entire ministry of Jesus. Over a hundred times in his ministry as recorded in the gospels, he talks about the fact that he's brought the kingdom of God to this planet. The kingdom of God has been planted on the planet, and the kingdom of God has been planted in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. It came in Jesus, and it's progressively coming to us through our relationship with him. The more we understand the kingdom, the more the kingdom grows in us, the more things in our lives and our spheres of influence look like God intended. Some of how that looks, disorder turns to order. I'm repeating some things I've said the last couple of weeks because I kind of need to do that to get to the point that I really want to make today. What happens when the kingdom of God comes? Disorder turns to order. Ugliness turns to beauty. Fear turns to faith. Anxiety turns to peace. Broken relationships are made whole. Injustice turns to justice. And and this is how it goes. This is what it looks like as we pray and actualize the reality of what Jesus said is possibly ours. Your kingdom come. Your will be done so that things look more and more on earth as you've intended for them to look in heaven. Jesus wants to emphasize that that's the message that's good seed. And the good seed is powerful seed. And before he talks about bad seed, he wants to make sure we understand the good seed is more powerful than the bad seed. So he then, so he tells a parable of the good soil. 
Then he tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He's getting ready to interpret the parable of the wheat and weeds, the good and bad existing together, the best and worst. Life is wonderful. Life is difficult. But before he gets to that, he then tells two more quick-hitting parables about the power of the good seed. Matthew 13, 31, I'm just going in order here in Matthew 13. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though, again, I've spent a lot of time with this, so I have to be careful to not read it and pass by it so quickly that that folks don't have an opportunity to get get your uh, brains in gear with me even after you've had several cups of coffee this morning. He told them another parable. He starts it the same way. started all of his parables here in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants, and note this, becomes a tree. The mustard seed grows into the largest of all garden plants, but it doesn't stop there. It becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Let's take just a few minutes on the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast before we then get to today's main point, which is the parable of the wheat and weeds. Why am I doing it this way? This is how Jesus did it. He said, good soil, good and bad seed. Oh, I'll tell you what that means, but first I want to remind you, the kingdom of heaven is like, he begins with, a mustard seed. The mustard seed is not actually, literally, the smallest of all seeds. Jesus was not trying to teach a class on science. He was trying to make a point about what the kingdom of God is like. He talked about a seed that's incredibly small, the smallest of seeds. And the point is that this thing that is small is is planted in the ground, and at first you don't see it. Then all of a sudden you look up, and it's grown into the biggest thing around. Okay, this is the point that he's attempting to make. And, and, and it's interesting in Matthew's account of this particular parable, Jesus talks about growth that on one hand is normative, natural, on the other hand is beyond normal or supernatural. He says that this mustard seed, which was probably a, 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 a very prevalent, uh, seed and plant and product in the first century and in Palestine. He said this mustard seed, when it's planted, it grows with some rapidity, as we've learned, to be the largest plant in the garden. A mustard seed Again, it's so small, it's like, how could anything of import be in this? But it grows to the largest plant in the garden, which uh, was a plant of probably six, seven, or eight feet long, and it essentially was a vegetable. Uh, That's how I've seen it described nonetheless. Uh, It was a plant in the garden. But Jesus said it grows from a seed to a plant, which one would expect. That was what normally happened. But then it mutated from a plant to a tree. 
The mustard seed didn't grow into a tree. The mustard seed grew into a plant. Jesus, remember, he's storytelling. He's not teaching a class in the natural sciences. He's trying to make a point about the nature of the kingdom of God. says, listen, it starts so small you can hardly even see it. And then, of natural course, it grows into the largest plant in the garden. But then it has within its somehow uh, genetics the ability to mutate to 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 uh, defy the laws of nature and what's normal and to grow into a tree so large that birds are able to come and find shelter in its branches. His point is the kingdom of God begins small. Over time it grows big. Some of this might be natural, but what's going to happen can't be explained just through the natural. It's supernatural. No one's going to be able to sit 2,000 years after this seed is planted. Who, well, who's planting the seed? Jesus is planting the seed. He's planting the seed on the planet. No one's going to be able to explain 2,000 years later how the greatest kingdoms in human history have come and gone and the kingdom of God continues to grow and thrive. How's it going to happen? What's well, going to happen because this is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about the idea that, that it's the birds come and live in its branches. I don't have time to get into this. Frankly, I don't even completely understand it. And I've not studied this at length. But there are a number of messianic prophecies, prophecies in the Old Testament, prophesying about the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom on the planet that speak in terms of trees that have grown where the birds of the air from the nations can come and find shelter in its branches. One such example is the 104th Psalm. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, there the birds make its nest. So not only is there this supernatural explosion of growth that can't be fully explained, it doesn't make sense by what anyone understands to be true, but now it's a place of shelter for the birds. And then finally about that, I'll say that mustard in the first century was understood to be a curative, that it had medicinal values. We know this from several sources, including the word of Pliny, who was the, uh, the naturalist in the first century who wrote uh, a, a book uh, called Naturalist Encyclopedic or something like that, that became the basis for all the encyclopedias that have been written since. He wrote this in the first century, and, and he studied nature. And one of the things that he said in his study of nature was that mustard is, quote, extreme, extremely beneficial for the health and helpful in the treatment of snake and scorpion bites, toothache, indigestion, asthma, epilepsy, constipation, dropsy, lethargy, tetanus, leprous sores, and other illnesses. Now, we're sitting here now, we're not thinking about mustard like that right now. We're thinking about Yankee Stadium, hot dog, mustard, sauerkraut, Aaron Judge, by God's grace, please, Lord, hitting his 60-second home run. That's what we're thinking of when we're thinking about mustard, right? But that's not what they were thinking of then. They were thinking of mustard as a curative that would bring healing. So Jesus says, listen, guys, I'm going to talk about how good and bad exist together, but let me remind you 
you how powerful the good is because the, the good is really, really good. It's like a little seed that's planted in the ground. You don't see it. It grows. And you walk in one day and say, whoa, this has become a mustard plant. This is amazing. And then you come another day and the mustard plant is mutated into a tree that's so large that birds are up there nestling in its branches and they're singing and all this kind of stuff. And then you get mustard. However you get mustard. I don't know how you get mustard. But you, you get mustard and it, it helps bring healing to whatever it is that's hurting you. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And see, that's the seed that Jesus planted on the planet, and that's the seed that Jesus planted in you when you confessed your faith, believed in Jesus, were born again by the seed of the Word of God. This thing starts small in you, and then all of a sudden you look up a few years later and you say, oh, what happened to me? And it's a good what happened to me. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. And then he says, he moves away from seed for a moment. Which let the pause for a commercial announcement. I'm taking a breath. I'm talking fast because, as usual, I do not have a dearth of material. I've got plenty to talk about today, um, and so I, I want to make sure I get to the to the main the main event, which is the parable that I'm actually teaching about. Um, uh, when I got this idea of teaching through the parables. I envisioned in my mind, you know, back midsummer, I envisioned in my mind, you know, the, the, the prodigal son, the, the good Samaritan, the, the, the part, pardon the expression, the sexier parables, the ones everybody knows about and their stories. And, and I mean, I thought, I just thought that's pretty easy to talk about the prodigal son, which I am, by the way, going to teach about the prodigal son last week. But as I started intensively studying the parables, it became so apparent that these seed parables, these seed of the kingdom of God parables, parables are the foundation that unlocks understanding of all the other parables. And in Matthew chapter 13, that's where Jesus starts teaching parables. It's over and over and over. It's the seed imagery. It's this is what the kingdom of God is like. Basically, he's given a big picture of what's going on in the world because he showed up and brought the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to plant it on the planet, and he's going to plant it in human hearts, and so on. So uh, today's the last day I'm going to become, I know, four weeks of seed stuff, but uh, that's how Jesus started his, his whole parable parabolic teaching of his 33 distinct parables, approximately, depending on how you count them. Over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is like seed, 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 seed. In this case, he now uses a different metaphor, yeast. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes a little bit of yeast and she mixes it into 60 pounds of flour. And that's what the kingdom of God is is like. Now, the term yeast here refers to a fermented dough, which was used at that time, which served as a leavening agent, of course, when mixed in flour and then into more dough, and it caused, obviously, bread to rise. And we're told that this woman mixed this yeast, presumably a little bit of yeast, in 60 pounds of flour. Now, uh, I, there's a scholar I've read on the parables who I like a lot named Amy Levine who says that though most English translations translate the word used in the original Greek language uh, that Matthew was written in as she mixed the flour in, the better word, and some translations use this, is the word hide, that she hid the flour, that she hid the yeast in the flour. And uh, when she hid the yeast in the flour, that what at first 
first could not be seen ultimately came to be revealed because the yeast caused a massive amount of bread to rise. The word hide, the word translated mixed here, is the Greek word encrypto from which we get our word encryption. And it has to do with this idea of there's a secret code. There's a secret kingdom code that got mixed, if you please, into this flower that that had in it all kinds of incredible things but it caused there to be a kind of a supernatural explosion of growth in fact what this woman ended up with was exploding bread because listen She's mixing it into 60 pounds of flour, and scholars say that 60 pounds of flour would have created bread that would have served at least 100 up to 150 people. You have to imagine this woman's living in a single-room house in, in, in Palestine in that era, which would have been pretty common. What in the world is she going to do with that much bread? There's so much bread her family can't eat it. There's so much bread they're not even going to be able to store it in all of their house. It's exploding bread! And I couldn't help it, it's kind of strange, but this came to my mind when I was reading that. It's a very spiritual reference. You probably will remember it. This is what I saw from... She put a little too much yeast in it, if you remember the story. There. Now, let's see. The oven's all preheated, like it said. And in a couple of hours, we'll have some nice homemade bread. Hey, you smell bread? Maybe it's done. How'd this oven door get open? much bread. I mean, see, this is the kind of thing Jesus was trying to convey. We'll read through a little parable like that and think that's nice. Let's get to the, uh, uh, you know, a better part. But Jesus is trying to say, listen, I'm going to tell you in a minute how good and bad can exist together, but I want to start by telling you what the good is like. The good is like a mustard seed. It doesn't just become the largest plant in the garden. It miraculously becomes a tree. The good is so powerful. It's like a little bit of yeast. A woman mixes into 60 pounds of flour and what she ends up is with so much bread. It's exploding bread. They can't not only eat it, but it's going to fill the whole house. It's going to break through the windows. They didn't have glass in, but if they did, it's going to break through the windows. There's so much bread. I mean, I hear Jesus, you know, you know, he's trying to convey this a lot, by the way. Give me a little bit of bread and give me a couple fishes. I bless it. I'm going to break it. I'm going to feed more than 5,000 people. Oh, wait a minute. There's so much bread that we're going to have 
have to go and somebody go get some bushel baskets and find all the bread that nobody could eat. Everybody's eating their stuff to the gills. They, they're, 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 they're getting ready to take a nap there. So go collect all the bread. And they come back with 12 bushels of bread. And then Jesus stands there and he says, I am the bread of life. What's the nature of the kingdom? It's something beyond anything we can possibly understand. And it's not just happening on the planet the last 2,000 years. It's happening in you. The good seed of the kingdom, or in this case, just a little bit of yeast, starts small, hidden, but explodes into something big and wonderful. Now, to today's message. It's only after Jesus reestablished this that he then goes and interprets the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Matthew 13, 36. I'm just following along here in the text. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, talking now about judgment, The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So a few comments on His interpretation, which is pretty thorough. First of all, the Son of Man who sowed the good seed is Jesus referring to Himself. His message is the seed of the kingdom. Those who receive His message become good seed sown in the world. They come to be called the people of the kingdom. They're referred to here as the wheat. This is the good seed producing wheat. The good seed of the kingdom produces the people of the kingdom, and the people of the kingdom here are the wheat, are the, is the wheat that's growing. The enemy who comes and sows bad seed is the evil one, the devil. Now, we believe in the devil if for no other reason than because Jesus did. In fact, he knew him personally. Uh, and he says here that the devil came and planted bad seed that grew up into wheat, or from the King James Version, you might remember it as the tares. The bad seed produces people who cause sin and do evil. The most important point is that Jesus tells his disciples and all of us that he decided to allow the good seed or wheat and the bad seed or weeds to grow together till the end of the age. Then at the end of the age, judgment will come. Evil will be destroyed. Only good will remain. This is when the kingdom of God will be fully realized. Remember, we're living in a season of history between the the, the resurrection and the judgment that's called the already but not yet. The already but not yet. The kingdom is here. But we don't see it fully realized. Remember, it came in Jesus. It's coming through us. It will be finally 
revealed in all of its glory and physicality in at the end of the age after the second coming of Christ. So see, see the question his disciples were asking, and you can understand this, is you say that you brought the kingdom of heaven to this planet, is this it? Is this all there is? And furthermore, not only is it so small we can't see it now, it's 12 of us against the Roman Empire. This is the kingdom of heaven? Not only that, what about all the bad people? What about all the evil? What about all the suffering? What about all the difficulty? What about all that stuff? If the kingdom of heaven has come, why do we still face so much hell? And this is, you can literally, this is why you can understand then Jesus offers this parable to say, now listen, just because the kingdom has come doesn't mean there isn't bad stuff going on in this world. There's going to be a season where life is going to be wonderful and life is going to be difficult. When it's going to feel like at times the worst of times and other times it's going to feel like the best of times. Because the good seed and the bad seed have grown together. See, it wasn't unheard of for one evil farmer to sabotage another farmer's crop by planting weeds in a newly planted wheat field. In the early stages, the weed and weeds, the type of weeds that would be sown, according to those who've studied this from the first century, the type of weeds that would be sown when initially it be- they began to grow looked very similar to the weed. It was difficult to distinguish between the two. And it wasn't only after it had grown to more of a full-grown status that you started seeing the full result of the weed and the weeds. And it was only when it reached full growth that the weeds could be dealt with in a way that wouldn't destroy the wheat. And so um, the farmer, the son of man here in this picture, this is what Jesus is saying, decided to let both grow together until a proper judgment could be made. And to me, this is very important. He allowed this to happen for the good of the people of the kingdom. For whatever his reasons, for whatever his reasons, God allows good to coexist with evil for the good of the people of the kingdom. I'll say that again for those of you writing that down. For whatever his reasons, God allows good to coexist with evil for the good of, of the people of the kingdom. Why did he want to pull the weeds out prematurely? Because he knew that it would damage the roots of the wheat. And so he let the weeds grow, at least in part, for the good of the wheat. And this is you know, why a passage that's often quoted is so true and pertinent where Paul said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now part of this that's absolutely necessary to understand is that he resolves this by saying, but listen, this is our reality. Good and bad are going to grow together, but the day is coming when I'm going to judge between the weed and the wheat, and I'm going to tear up the wheat, the, pardon me, the weeds, and all that will be left is the wheat. Evil will be gone, only good will remain. See, believers need to have a positive view of judgment. I don't mean judging each other. In fact, when we have a proper view of the coming judgment, it should keep us from judging each other. Because there are a lot of things we're trying to sort out and we become judgmental and trying to sort out that he's going to sort out. And if we'll keep our focus on the right thing, 
He's going to take care of it all in the end, and this should bring us hope. I like what N.T. Wright, the eminent New Testament scholar, wrote about this. He said, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for. It causes people throughout Scripture to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression. The thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with the world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God. God of judgment. It's all going to get sorted out in the end. And, and again, like anything I say about future reality, the reality that exists in the age to come, we taste some of this now. We'll see God sort something out now. But it's not all going to be resolved now. We have to understand, is it the best of time or worst of times? The good seed and the bad seed are growing together. This is just the way it is. So let me offer then, for the rest of my time, three perspectives on why evil coexists with good for our good. Look, guys, the problem of evil, which is the technical way we describe this issue, the problem of evil, is a very real concern that thoughtful Christians must address. People ask, and they should, and I think the disciples of Jesus were essentially asking this as well. If there is a God, and if God is good, why does He allow evil to exist? Why is there pain and struggle and sickness and death and so on? And I think the best answer to that question, and it might be a disappointing one, is we don't know. Now, I'm going to try to offer some perspectives, okay, from what we can know. But ultimately, he's God. We're not. And I think we have to be too careful as Christians, especially when speaking to someone who's suffering in some significant way, to offer a glib, pat answer that we read in a book someplace that resolves human tragedy in a few sentences. The reality is... There's a we don't knowness to this that has to do with the fact that he is God and he is not. But what we do know about God is that he is good and he has good reasons for doing what he does and that he does what he does ultimately for our good. So with that in mind, while saying we don't know, let me offer three perspectives on why evil coexists with good. First of all, the coexistence of good and evil creates choice. God wants people who want Him. And He decided to create people with free will. And how can we have free will without choice? Hence, even and especially in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're still eating the fruit of the decision of of Adam and Eve. Good and evil have coexisted ever since. And in some ways, every day, we are asked to make a choice between good and evil. Guys, remember, part of what God is up to from before the very beginning is that He wants, to, he wants a people who freely decide they want Him and they want what He's offering. And history has been working its way until the time when those who've made that decision are left when those who didn't make that decision are weeded out. See, God is still about what He wanted in the beginning. He wanted people who would love Him, 
be in relationship with him, and join him in governing this planet. And that is how things are going to be when it's all said and done. We're working our way through that, and part of working our way through that is we are all faced with a choice as to whether or not we want good or evil. This is important to what God's doing throughout history as best we can tell. Secondly, the coexistence of good and evil engage us in the fight for good. We participate. We participate with God in the ultimate overthrow of evil. So part of what happens now is not only do we choose good, but we are in a position where we actually have to fight for good. We fight for that within our own selves. We fight for that, hopefully, in many other ways. So on one hand, remember Jesus said, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to which we would all say, if that was the end of the story, well, hallelujah, praise God, isn't that nice? The Father wants to give us the kingdom and give me the kingdom. On the other hand, Jesus in another place said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. To which one could ask, well, if it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, why do you have to violently take it by force? Because we have an enemy because there's opposition because God allows there to exist a state called cosmic dualism where there's good and evil and good and evil not just in terms of concept but good and evil in terms of personalities the, the good that comes from God and the world of light and the darkness that comes from the evil one and, and the world of darkness there is a battle and we are engaged in that battle, like it or not, the fact we are, and God allows that to happen. And part of this is, is He wants to spend eternity with people who are willing to fight with Him for what's good. And the fight develops something important in us. Now, it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 has the Apostle Paul famously saying, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The bad news is we feel this in our lives. We feel some kind of opposition that's beyond normal. This is reality. We are in the middle of a great cosmic struggle. We are participants in it, and God is allowing that to happen, and somehow He's doing it for our good. We need to fight for good. There's this incredible passage of Scripture in the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, I don't want to go too far down this trail except to say the people of Israel, captive in Egypt, they get delivered from Egypt, they go through the wilderness. When they entered the promised land, uh, uh, the, the book of Joshua tells us how they fought to secure it. And they fight this nation and that nation and this nation and that nation, and they win. And after they win, now about 400 years of that, you go into the next book of the Old Testament, which is Judges. And Judges starts by saying that even though God's people won all these great victories, God deliberately left certain nations there so that succeeding generations would have to continue to know how to fight for what God promised them. Now, why would you have to fight for what God promised you? Well, <laughs> because somehow God in His wisdom sees our engagement in the fight as something good that develops us in important ways for now, for success now, and for success 
forever. Here's the passage, Judges 3, 1 and 2. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Another paraphrase of the passage said, God wanted to give opportunity to the youth of Israel to exercise faith and obedience in conquering their enemies. You may be facing something right now that you would consider to be of the enemy. You may be facing a situation with someone who who has in some way declared themselves your enemy. Now remember, in the Old Testament, off with their head. In the New Testament, pray for them. Okay, You have to remember that the real enemy is not the person. The real enemy are the spiritual forces behind the person. So you love the person and pray against the evil that influences the person. Okay, But nonetheless, you may may be going into work tomorrow and facing some situation that feels like it's an enemy. And and, 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 and I just want you to consider the possibility that God is allowing that person to be there to test you in some way so you can deal with it in a way that develops your character in a way that will make you stronger and more capable of true success now and forever. Some of you just got discouraged and some of you just got encouraged. It's the best of times and the worst of times. There's more going on, guys, in this world than us just having our little magic wand what we want tomorrow. We're going to get that in the age to come, but we're not right now. The bad and the good's growing together. Here's the third thing. Facing the challenges, and the first two lead to this then, facing the challenges that come from the existence of evil, challenges large and small, helps develop us into the people we were meant to be and prepares us to partner with God in relationship and work again now and forever. I love Donald Miller's writing about a a story, about living a good story. And he writes this, he says, a character... Now he's talking about how to write a good story, how to write a good story with your life. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it is the basic structure of a good story. If the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. And the New Testament teaches us that in our relationship with God, The character of Jesus is being formed in us. This is not an overnight, you know, you don't lay hands on someone. I saw someone say something like this this week somewhere else. You don't lay hands on someone and pray for someone and there's a miraculous development of their character. Character develops over time. Character is developed as you face the choice between good and evil. Character is developed as you fight for what's good. Character is developed as you're in relationship with Jesus and become more and more like Him. But this doesn't happen in a perfect world. This happens in a world where the weeds and the wheat are growing together. James wrote, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. My final word, guys, let's acknowledge the weeds, but focus on the good seed and go after the kingdom. 
I encourage you to read the rest of Matthew 13. I don't have time to get into a couple more quick things Jesus said. But basically, he said, okay, that's the reality. The good and bad is growing together. But go after the good. Go after the kingdom. What, whatever you need to do, go, go engage the kingdom. You know, I hate weeds. I hate weeds. And I'm not talking parabolically. I'm talking literally. I, I am pretty obsessed, my dad taught me this, with having a lush green lawn. And, um, and, and, and so, so I, I, wor- I work at it, or I have people work at it. And I hope when you see the lawns here at the church, you're not imagining me out there pulling weeds, are you? But you see the lawns here, you get a little reflection of, you know, th- that's how I want things to look right, right? And and but but I can pull up to my lawn and it can be as beautiful and green. If I see some crabgrass, I, 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 right out of my out of the window of my study is a little patch where the people that put the weed stuff down forgot to spray and crabgrass was. I had trouble focusing, studying, being able to p- prepare sermons, being able to preach on Sundays because I look out there and see that crabgrass growing in my lawn. I'm exaggerating, but hey, what's new? So, but I, I'm trying to say, I hate weeds. And if I'm not careful, I'll let some weeds destroy what the reality of my lawn is, which it's a beautiful, green, lush lawn. And if we're not careful, we can let the fact that some bad is is allowed to continue to grow, to mess up all the good that's going on in our life. But Jesus is trying to say, yeah, there are some weeds growing, but the good seed is really, really good. And it's so powerful, it takes mustard seeds and miraculously creates trees. It's so powerful, it takes a little bit of yeast and creates exploding bread. And it's so powerful in you, regardless what you're facing, good will always overcome evil because the good is really, really good.